Did you know that the average worker stays in the same job for 4.4 years? Some UK universities have a dropout rate of over 60%. The average marriage lasts 8.2 years. UK church attendance has more than halved in the last 25 years. Perseverance is hard. And we're looking at perseverance today. You see, perseverance is not just a case of, as Winston Churchill was famous for saying, keep buggering on. Perseverance is God-enabled persistence through difficulties into eternity. Perseverance is directional into eternity. Perseverance is a real struggle, and it has been for thousands of years. The book of Hebrews is the letter in the Bible that was written to Jewish Christians who were struggling to stand firm and to continue follow Jesus in the face of opposition and oppression. You see, when they became Christians, they then had Jews opposing them. They had different Gentiles opposing them and different faiths from Greek and Roman faiths. Converting to faith in Christ results in a loss of jobs, loss of family connections, friendships, and all sorts of social associations. See, the believers that we read about in the book of Hebrews originally did demonstrate perseverance and courage. But now, some of them have lost their spiritual fervor, and some had abandoned Christ and the church. We're going to be looking today at Hebrews 12, and I want to invite you to turn there in your Bible. Hebrews is a book that lifts up Jesus Christ and reminds us that he is supremely worthy of our commitment, our worship, and our perseverance. So where better to focus for this? So turn with me to Hebrews 12. The, the, just briefly, the chapter that precedes this, Hebrews 11, is a list of people who have persevered with great faith. The writer of Hebrews explains how the believer can also have such great faith and therefore persevere through the hardest of trials. I think if you've ever read Hebrews 11. I do this, but I think we often read it as an unobtainable hall of faith or hall of fame. You know, it's these faith giants and us mere spiritual peasants will never be able to catch up with them. But that was never the intention for the writer of Hebrews. The writer used these people as sort of to stir up our passion and our spiritual fervor to encourage us to live similarly. The writer of Hebrews was actually just laying out the spiritual norm. And we are to be like these giants of faith. But let's look at um, Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from the sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this book of Hebrews. I pray now in these next few minutes that you will speak from your word into our hearts, that we'll encounter you, and you'll stir up a, a passion and a fervor to live like these giants of faith. Father God, I pray that you'll give us a spirit of perseverance. 
Speak through and beyond me, I pray. Amen. So the writer of Hebrews puts us in a stadium by using, you know, um, sporting language. Um, And he describes these previously mentioned um, heroes of great faith as a cloud of witnesses and sort of depicts them as cheering us on from the sidelines. But the writer uses them as inspiration so that we can persevere in our race. First of all, when we read this verse, we instantly see that perseverance requires preparation and it requires action. Preparation that it says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And it requires action in that we are actually to run. See, I'm an action person. I get fed up with preparation. I just want to run headlong and give it a go. But often that leads to mistakes. But to persevere, we need to prepare. What hinders you? What entangles you? Throw it off, cut it out, gouge it out. We have no hope to persevere if we don't prepare ourselves. Last year, um, Bex's parents got a new car, my wife, and they gave us their old car. It's an old school blue Vauxhall Zafira, complete with roof bars. And when Bex's dad gave it to me, he said, do you want to keep the roof bars on? And as a guy, I was like, yes, you know, I'm going to move. I'm going to be moving big things. You know, you always expect to move these big things, but we never actually do. So I kept these on, and for years, I just, uh, for months, I just carried on. But then recently, Bex and I drove down to the south of France. So we drove on down. It was about a 600-mile journey. And when we got there, um, I was speaking to my brother because he was there on holiday too. And we're having a chat one evening. He said, why do you still have the roof bars on? And to be honest, I'd just forgotten about them. You know, the sort of things that you see every day, but you forget about. But he said, if you remove them, you'll have 10% more fuel efficiency, at least. And we did. And actually, um, Bex and I managed to drive back up to Birmingham here from the south of France in one tank of fuel. It actually made that much of a difference. Now, the reason I've told you this story is that when we read this verse, we so often focus on the bit that says, the sin that so easily entangles. But we miss the direction to throw off everything that hinders I saw the roof bars every day that I used our car, but I was blind to the impact that they were having. They are good things, and they are made for a certain job, but they're not for everyday driving. Are you carrying something that maybe isn't morally sinful, but its claim on your life is hindering you from following in the purpose of God? Is there something that is taking you away from what God is calling you to do? Seeing having nice things is not a problem, but do they own you? Then it becomes a problem. Safety and comfort are not a problem unless they own you. Sleep and rest, work, even making lots of money is not a problem as long as it doesn't own you. We are called to throw off everything that hinders. Let me ask you a question today. Are you serious? Are you serious about this? Are you serious about following Jesus? Are you serious about loving God and living life in a response to that relationship with him? Are you serious about persevering your faith? Do you care whether you cross the finish line or not? You see, if you're serious, then you have to get serious about sin. Then you have to get serious and throw off everything that hinders. We can't be people who talk the talk, know the Christian ease, know when to raise our hand in the worship, but then go home and flirt with sin. The stakes are too high. We are to be lovers of God, not mistresses of sin. You want to persevere? You've got to get serious.
However, we can't just leave it to preparation. We read that we're called to run with perseverance. We are to run, to exert ourselves, to strive hard, to spend our strength in performing and attaining something. The writer didn't say think with perseverance or hope with perseverance, but to run. And running with perseverance takes a lot of work. But we're not just to run blindly. We are to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What this is saying is that there's a race. There's a plan and a purpose for you. There's a race. There's a plan and a purpose for me. Your race is your race, and my race is my race. You see, the trouble today is we do so much comparison. We look at people's daily activities and lives, and we spend all our energy comparing. But that leads to two things. Either make you proud or make you insecure. You see, it's easy to compare yourself to Hitler, and you can feel pretty good about yourself. But compare yourself to Abraham or David in the Bible, then it might, be not, be, might not be so. But we read that we're not called to run Billy Graham's race, but our own race. There is a race marked out for you. But when it comes to perseverance, why is it important to know that there is a race marked out for us? Because if there is a race marked out for us, we can know that God is sovereign over all things in our life. And therefore, in him, we have hope to persevere. Psalm 139, verse 16 says this. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Therefore... Today was ordained by God before you were born. Therefore, tomorrow, the next day, next week, next year, was ordained by God before you were born. Every moment laid out before a single day had passed. That's what the Bible says. You see, understanding God's sovereignty in and over our lives is the key for perseverance. God being sovereign means he is able to do his holy will. Wayne Grudem says, the fact that God knows the end from the beginning and that he will accomplish all his good purposes without fail or hindrance should increase our trust in him, especially in difficult circumstances. You see, hard times will come and hard times will go. And if we believe that they catch God out, you know, and they're not within his plan for our life, that he has to do a quick fix because something happens, then we no longer believe God to be sovereign. And we believe that we are victims of fate, of chance, and of luck. We can persevere because there is a race marked out for us. We can persevere because we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance to us to do. Better still, though, God does not leave us alone to run this race with perseverance. He's not like a parent at sports day cheering on their son from the finish line. No, God helps us to run. He guides and our desires and our inclinations, working in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It is because Paul knows that God is sovereign over all, all his works, all his purposes, in every event, that he can declare, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. It is because Paul is assured in God's sovereignty. If we are confident in God's sovereignty, 
We need not fear any evil or harm, because if it does come our way, we know that it has been permitted to do so by God and is therefore ultimately for his glory and our good. I'm going to say that again. If we are confident in God's sovereignty, we don't need to fear any evil or any harm, because if it does come our way, we know that it has been permitted to do so by God and therefore ultimately for his glory and our good. We can persevere because there's a race marked out for us and the God who loves us and is sovereign establishes our steps. That is why we can persevere because there's a race marked out for us. Verse 2 says this. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. What does it mean to fix your eyes on Jesus? It's a wonderful sentiment, but what does it mean and how do we do it? The key is found a few verses earlier in Hebrews 11. The writer reasons why these people of great faith persevered despite such hardship. See, Hebrews 11:16 says this. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a place for them. Fixing your eyes on Jesus means longing for heaven and taking your eyes off this world. It means taking your eyes off this current battle, the worry, the heartache, the opposition, the sickness, and saying, this isn't my home. It doesn't need to be all right right now because it's going to be perfect when I'm with Jesus. Fixing your eyes on Jesus is looking beyond the immediate. It is walking by faith and not by sight. It is trusting God's promise that heaven is real. And one day, those that believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life will be with him for eternity. And there he will wipe every tear from our eye. There'll be no death, no sorrow, no crying or pain. Fixing your eyes on Jesus is looking to then. When I learned to drive, I couldn't drive straight. Whether it was 5 or 50 miles an hour, I was just swerving constantly. And I was trying so hard not to swerve that I was staring at the bonnet and any lateral movement I'll try to quickly counter. But my mum gave me the best tip ever and it stuck with me far beyond driving. She said, don't look at the bonnet. Don't focus on where you are. Focus on where you're going. The same applies as we persevere. Fix our eyes on Jesus, because that is where we're going. But you know, this isn't just burying your head in the sand. It's actually quite the opposite. When we fix our eyes on Jesus and focus on where we're going, our perspective actually changes. And we can look at the struggles and trials differently. Rather than wearing us out and consuming us, our heavenly perspective, this new perspective, enables us to persevere and have faith, even in the most horrendous of circumstances. We are to be like Stephen. In Acts 7, we read of his martyr. I'm going to read a few verses from Acts 7 for you now on Stephen as he was stoned to death. It says, The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at a young man named Saul. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, 
receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge him with this sin. And with that, he died. Where do we fix our eyes? Is it on Christ, whom from all faith flows and perseverance begins and ends? Or is it something else? Often we busy ourselves in work or distract ourselves in social situations rather than actually fixing our eyes on Jesus. Oswald Chambers says the most important aspect of Christianity is not the work we do, but the relationship we maintain. The second half of that verse says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The Greek word here, use of pioneer, which means means originator, author, or founder. And also the Greek word used for perfecter means perfecter or completer and finisher. What we can see from this is that Jesus is the founder of our faith, that it all comes from him. But he's also the perfecter and completer of our faith. You see, he's the first and the last in this. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and Omega through our faith. If we do fix our eyes upon Jesus... Like our faith begins and ends in this. And so if, if we don't fix our eyes on Jesus, it is impossible to persevere. We read that Jesus is the perfect and completer or finish of our faith. And he's not done with you. And he's not done with me yet. As I said earlier, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus is working in us so that we can persevere in our faith. Jesus is working in us so we can be more and more like him. Yes, we've made a lot of mistakes, but Jesus is perfecting our faith. Jesus knows about the times that you failed and no one else knows about. He knows about all the future mistakes, but you know what? He's the pioneer and perfecter. What he started, he's going to finish. His sacrifice on the cross covers it. What he started, he will complete. After instructing, to fix us, after instructing us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the writer of Hebrew describes the sufferings of Christ and what he endured. He says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus sat down. His work is done. But the cross stands. Have you failed? The cross stands. You messed up again and again. You know, the cross stands. It goes on to say, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer wanted to embolden these Jewish Christians who were suffering because of their faith by reminding them of what Jesus endured. You see, Jesus endured rejection as he went from town to town teaching. Jesus endured betrayal by one of his closest friends. Jesus endured the complete separation from God as he bore our sin and our shame. Jesus endured torture to the point of death, and he did this to reveal his glory and his grace. Whilst we are still his enemies, he endured for people who, at that time, hated him. Christ didn't die for you in the future when he got it all right. He died for you now. He didn't die for the future of you when he got it figured out. He died for you right now. We must persevere because Jesus endured the cross. We are to be like Christ. If we are to share in his glory, we are to share in his suffering. Because Jesus endured suffering, we must too. He prophesied this when speaking to his friends in John 15. He said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. 
but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? Is A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they'll persecute you. And if they listened to me, then they would listen to you. I wonder if the band could come up as I just finish this off. Not only is Christ's endurance a reason for us to persevere, but it also shows that the mighty God we serve, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, knows and understands our pains and our struggles. Our God is not aloof, callous, or disinterested. But he understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testing as we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And there we'll receive mercy and we'll find grace to help us when we need it most. The God we serve knows what it's like to hurt and to suffer. So that pain, that hurt that you've been carrying for years, that struggle, God knows and he understands. Take it to him. He is the perfecter. Church, we cannot grow weary and lose heart, as the final warning in this passage says. But you know what? If you have, if you have lost heart, we can't stay there. The stakes are too high, as I said earlier. If you've lost heart, in a minute we're going to invite some people up to pray. If you've lost heart, I want to invite you to come forward. And we can help you. We can help you refine it. Have you checked out? Are you keeping face, but you're not really there? Perhaps you've grown apathetic and don't care anymore. You've lost, you've failed too many times. The problem, the struggle, the battle is too big. Or perhaps you've been praying for someone and not seen any change. Well, let us run with perseverance and trust the sovereignty of God over our lives. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus and remember that heaven is our home. Let us consider Christ and all that he endured and may that spur you to persevere. Are you serious about this? Why don't you stand if you can able, if you're able? Why don't you stand? Are you serious about this? Perseverance takes work. There's good times, but there's hard times. And we need to know that God is sovereign through those times. Are you serious about this? It's hard, but it's necessary.